Welcome to Prospecting Purpose, where we explore mining's role in shaping a sustainable, socially just, and brighter future. I'm Liz Friel, your host for the series, with a rotating guest on every episode. Have you noticed how industry discourse on indigenous rights, self-determination, cultural heritage has been expanding? Have you found yourself confused by acronyms like FPIC or UNDRIP, wondering what they mean for the industry? Maybe you've wondered about the future of indigenous participation in mineral resource development. That's exactly what we're going to focus on today. Joining me as my co-host for this episode is Alan Itzirza, a Taltan Nation elder, recognized artist, and senior negotiator. Alan is specialized in bringing together First Nations, public governments, communities, and industry. Alan actually has over 50 years of mineral exploration and development experience. He started as a laborer in the pit and the mill, and today is actually founder of his own company. Welcome, Alan. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Morning. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. Alan, you're an elder from a First Nation here in Canada who also has a foot in the mining industry. I know you can find strong anti-mining sentiment in every corner of the globe, including with different Indigenous peoples. Some peoples are keen to leverage uh, industrial resource development to promote economic growth, while others see these resources as something not to be commodified at all. From your perspective and experience, how can mineral extraction and Indigenous values coexist healthily? I'd like to start by saying that Many Indigenous leaders recognize mining as an important resource economy because as they strive to achieve self-determination, they recognize that mining in their territories will be really important for them to achieve self-determination. You talked about our history in mining. Well, I'm Taltan, and in our country, our people used to trade obsidian for thousands of years. I view that as mining just at a very early phase in, um, in North American evolution. My first involvement in the mining sector was really in Faro Mine. As a young newlywed guy, that's where I went to um, seek employment. And it was probably one of the best decisions I did. So I grew up with raising my family. They were, we have a son and a daughter, both born while I was working in Faro. So I understand and appreciate the uh, importance of mining for from an economic perspective, as well as, uh, you know, I do know they have to, you know, I have concerns about mining and needing to clean up how they operate, but I do respect that it's an important part of our economy. In the 70s, when I worked at Ferro, was at a time when mining companies really did not engage with the uh, local First Nations. They did not really go out of their way to try to build relationships with First Nations. And therefore, the Faro Mine, even though it was 50 miles away from Ross River, Ross River suffered many impacts from the mine itself. You know, a migrant workforce is coming into their community to hunting along their roads and corridors where they live. And they really didn't achieve any kind of real employment out of it. There was no concerted effort to bring them in to the mining company to do work for the company. So they were just impacted in a not the best way. Right. And, and I guess even beyond um, you know, the lack of local employment, you talk about the 1970s. Even today, we still see heartbreaking, frustrating incidents harming progress on themes of community respect, trust, relationships, sustainability. Uh, the most high-profile one in 2020 is probably the Duke and Gorge tragedy in May 2020, the 46,000-year-old rock shelters 
um, that were destroyed. They had immense Aboriginal heritage significance in the Pilbara in Australia. But I think these kinds of incidents happen less and less and are increasingly unacceptable. And we saw in that particular case, senior executives held accountable stepping down. The industry has come a very long way. And I wonder if in your career, you feel like uh, trends overall are suggesting that we are moving in a better direction. Do you feel encouraged? Well, I'd have to say that some of the larger companies are making a serious effort to start building relationships with the Indigenous communities. They are entering into agreements that allow First Nations Indigenous people to participate as contractors, as employees. And so I do see it improving. But even with that happening, you still see catastrophic events like Mount Pauly and like the um, mine in Brazil, you know, Valley's mine. I mean, like, it's, you know, that one was even more severe in that there was a loss of life. But overall, the bigger companies are making a very concerted effort. You know, and I do believe what you were talking about in uh, the mining project that destroyed the uh, thousands of years old sacred site in Australia. It just raises it all back up again and gave it a very high negative profile. I mean, you know, and, and those kinds of incidents have to become not less. It just shouldn't happen at all. See, in our nation, what we did is we set up what we call a chance find policy because our people covered a lot of our country. You know, it's a very large country. It's like 95,000 square miles, some of the richest mineral deposits in the world in our territory. What we wanted to do is try to figure out how to deal with the mining company if they, by chance, came along and found a community site or hunting camps and stuff of our people for thousands of years. And if they do, then we have a policy on how to deal with it. So when we think about the integration of Indigenous knowledge and values in the mining industry, I realize that some of our audience may not have had the experience of working with Indigenous peoples before. So could you share a bit about what's, what's the value of that integration and why it can be so win-win from your experience? Today, society and public governments are starting to recognize Indigenous people have, in some cases, have unsurrendered title. And the courts and public government are recognizing that we have an inherent right of self-government. In real simple language, what this means is with title, we have ownership. And with inherent right, we have jurisdiction and authority. So it's really important for us to, uh, as governments, to work out an understanding about who actually owns the land and uh, how do you make decisions with respect to development. How do you make decisions on management of the of those decisions? And how do you deal with the revenue that accrues from resource development? Those things, have, we have to deal with those on a government-to-government basis. And because this resource development has been happening, you know, as, as resource developers pursue logging, as they pursue mining or pursue oil and gas, they recognize that they should be working to build a relationship with those people whose lands are on. And so they've started doing what we call impact benefit agreements or project agreements of some sort. And in those, what we're trying to do is build a relationship amongst ourselves so we understand how the project will evolve and develop over time. So I think both industry and government have worked to try to do that, but it's still sort of disjointed. 
you know, I think that as we look at the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People, what it does is it sets out some principles and some concepts on, so it's really known as a, basically as a human rights piece of work. And it's recognizing that as Indigenous people, we do have rights and that government and industry should respect that. Here in British Columbia, they passed the Declaration Act to try to give them the uh, enabling legislation to, in fact, implement the uh, key pieces of the UN Declaration. I think that there is a deep recognition that we have to deal with underlying title and rights, and that's largely to create certainty for industry. But public government wants certainty, so do First Nation governments. Right. I'm glad that you brought that up. I actually wanted to ask you about it. So the United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People um, was adopted in 2007. It wasn't until 2016 that here in Canada we signed up. Um, and then in 2019, as you mentioned, in, in British Columbia, we actually saw it become a part of the law, which is extremely interesting. And I'd love to hear your perspective on on how that's changed things um, as we see the rise of the term free prior and informed consent uh, within the industry. How does this change things for relationships between the indigenous communities with regards to mining and, and mining companies seeking to develop projects in a country like Canada? Well, you see, I think um, on a world stage, I was in a conversation with the uh, federal government where they have data that suggests that Canada is slipping and ranking as a place to to do exploration from mine uh, minerals and metals. And, and they try to figure out, okay, why is it slipping? There's a number of reasons. There's 10 provinces, three territories. And so you get different kind of laws in each of them. But in British Columbia and then across Canada, what's happening is First Nations' inherent right to self-government starts to come up. And so even the historical treaties did not address self-government. They talked about trying to resolve the land question. So what's happening is it creates uncertainty. The UN Declaration is starting to be captured in things like IRMA standards. So IRMA is, is Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance. And so what you're starting to see is pieces being put into standards for mining companies to try to become more social conscious and more environmentally conscious of what their projects are doing. And so the UN declaration, um, I was just involved in a, in a call conference on uh, Thursday. International legal scholars would say that even though the UN declaration is not legally enforceable or binding, as they say, in a legal sense, it is still important to understand that it's a piece of human rights work. It's important to understand that it's put in there to guide public government to properly respect the Indigenous communities. And so I think from my perspective, it sort of starts to give some clarity on how one might try to work with industry to better understand each other and to, um, as I say, build a proper relationship. The Declaration Act commits the province of BC to implementing the, the uh, principles of the UN Declaration. And so as part of that, they have to look at all their legislation. So if they have legislation that's not 
consistent with the declaration, then they should change it. And I'm going to give you an example of one that I have a deep interest in. If you take a look at the Mineral Tenure Act in British Columbia, you as an individual can go online, buy a free miner's certificate from anywhere in the world. You can go online and you can stake a claim from anywhere in the world. You do not need to know who the people who you're affecting. And then when you go to register your claim, if you pay the fee to register, then the province of British Columbia is required by law to register it. So they're giving a legal interest to our land and to our resource without any input at all or without even having to talk to the affected First Nations. And I say that's wrong. And that's kind of what the UN Declaration is getting at, is you shouldn't be able to do that. You, you know, the same with some of the big permits and licenses. It's the same thing. They could technically, you can go and get them all without having to uh, get the consent of First Nations. But we think that that should be, they do need to engage First Nations. They do need free prior informed consent at key pieces, uh, key steps along the way and milestones, I guess. Absolutely. And so do you think that the legislation will be changing in the future? Is that part of is that part of what you see for the future of our industry? Well, it just happens that one of my roles is to lead the discussions with the province of British Columbia on behalf of the First Nation Energy and Mining Council with the idea of saying, how do you make the mining laws in British Columbia consistent with the UN Declaration? And so that's one of the things that I'm dealing with. And I've um, been abundantly clear with government that the key piece of legislation they have that needs to be changed is the Mineral Tenure Act. There needs to be a mechanism for First Nation to be involved in a decision as to whether you grant a legal interest in the land and resource or, or whether you withhold that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier, Indigenous people were mining on this continent well before the arrival of European settlers. And even though today's industrial mining looks pretty different, there's still this strong relationship between the mining sector and Indigenous peoples. Like in, in Canada, you, you mentioned agreements. I think we have close to 500 agreements like actively in place right now in this country. And I've heard that mining is proportionately the largest private sector employer of Indigenous peoples as well. So there's a lot of involvement. But one thing I think we don't see a lot still is Indigenous-owned or Indigenous-managed mineral resource development. Is that something that you think that we should be aspiring to? I absolutely think it's essential. You know, I want to tell you a little story as to help us to get to this. One of the major examples that I can demonstrate to you are there's two of them in the Yukon. The Klondike Gold Rush was the original discovery claims. There was a First Nations involved in that. From that flowed the whole Klondike Gold Rush that we know today started in 1898. It's still going on up there today. I understand last year they took 85,000 ounces of gold out of the Klondike gold fields last year. Wow. And if you time that, you know, that, that's significant revenue. A Ross River Denna Council elder by the, the name of Joe Ledoux. You see, and Joe Ledoux actually took Al Kulan up onto the original Faro mine site 
showed him the water that was coming out of it. It was real rusty red. It was Al Kulan then who had it drilled out and developed, and he became a multimillionaire over it. But Joe Ledoux did not. Joe Ledoux was given 500 a, a month for as long as he lived. And Kulan walked away a multimillionaire. And so what's happened with that kind of a scenario you see is the wealth is typically leaves the community. So big companies come in, they mine the product, and then they go away. They find another mine. But we're the ones left sitting there. I use this term in a, to try to illustrate a point. The way I feel about it is up to now, it's been largely what we would call trinkets and beads kind of mentality as to how they would deal with Indigenous people. I believe it's important for us, our people, to start getting geology degrees, mining engineer degrees. We need to start to sit on the board of directors. We need to set up our own company. And we need to start to go on the land and become owners. As you build a wealth, you then have the uh, ability to deal with helping your community to rise as a collective community. So that makes me think about economic reconciliation. Reconciliation has been a buzzword in the Canadian landscape over the last five years. And I'm wondering what you think mining's role might be in advancing reconciliation in this country and even around the world. Well, reconciliation has sort of become a government buzzword, in my view. What we're talking about here is, is we have to build these relationships that are getting built on respect for each other and trust. When we say we're going to do something, we can trust each other that we're going to do it. And so when I talk about self-determination, it's really about economic, uh, you know, um, recognizing that the development of our lands and resources are really key for a lot of our communities on how do you achieve that economic self-sufficiency. To be, be able to function as a government, you need that economic self-sufficiency so that you're not relying on government for handouts so that you could actually make government-type decisions. Usually when government gives a transfers funds to First Nations, they put conditions on it. This is how you can use it. And most of it, you can't spend it except for on reserve. That's what we call colonization. You see, they keep us on the reserve, keep us dependent on them for funding, and uh, make our government accountable to them. So that's what we're trying to break away when we talk about economic, as you put it, economic reconciliation. I call it self-determination. I think that going forward, our nation, our people are going to be pursuing, we need to pursue resource development. We need to build relationship with the industry. You know, some would say oil and gas was further advanced in building relationship with Indigenous people, but mining's coming along. You know, I was involved in negotiating a, what we called a socio-economic participation agreement with a very large mine in the Yukon. And they agreed in the document to the concept of requiring free prior informed consent of the people before they would move forward with the project. In that agreement, we built in a lot of things like you should not leave your, all of your reclamation work to the end of the project but it should be done as you went along so that you didn't have a great big huge reclamation restoration issue 
at the end of a project. And then agreeing on roles like how the First Nation would have a major say in the environmental assessment. Because you see, most assessments are designed to mitigate impacts. In our world, we quite often say, we don't want to talk about mitigating. If it's a major environmental issue, the question is, should it go forward or not? And I think what we're looking for from industry more and more is, you know, if we say that, then you have to respect it. It may, it may result in different kind of access routes, for example. Or one of the things that I'm wanting to see more and more is for mining companies to use better technology, newer technology, so your use of water gets reduced. Do we need tailing systems anymore? I'd like to see those kind of discussions evolve. And then also, how do you take your project and make it less impactful on the environment? You know, carbon emissions. Can you design your project in a way that you're not potentially uh, exposing ecosystems to um, very harmful impact, catastrophic events like Mount Pauly? Well, and I, and I guess this is where the equity conversation comes in. You know, with equity, you can have so much more say over the business model, over the mine plan, over the entire life cycle planning. I wanted to ask you, you are a, you're a 51% owner of a company called Chiona Metals, right? That's correct. Um, so that's an exploration partnership with a pretty unique business model for doing your exploration, which we don't see that every day uh, in our industry. Could you tell us a bit about what's what's unique with that compared to other junior explorers? You know, what's really interesting is my is my partner is uh, Deerhorn Capital, and they're a public company. You see, and so, but Shona Metals is a private company, and I hold fifty one percent. I don't need to have all the signing authority, but I do have the voting authority as to the direction of the company and how it will move forward. This is important because it, what it does is it allows me and my partners to discuss the kind of projects we want to get into, and it allows us to move forward in a way that's you know, very respectful of the uh, indigenous community whose area we're, we're working in. And what's also unique about this company is we reached out to a very prominent not-for-profit group and this uh, organization called Resolve. And Resolve is uh, headquartered in Washington, D.C. It's a really unique partnership. It's one that, you know, I'm very proud of. You know, we can talk about the kind of projects that um, Chiona Metals is involved in. Yeah, I, I'd love to hear more about I know that you're involved in one project in particular that I find really interesting, the Salmon Gold Project. Uh, as part of your relationship with Resolve. Uh, my understanding of that project is you are taking a holistic systems view, trying to create lasting benefits uh, far above and beyond mere profitability. So um, can you maybe tell us a bit about the Salmon Gold Project? It literally produces gold while restoring salmon habitats. It's pretty incredible. What's interesting about this project, there's a number of them. The first is with Resolve, as our partner, the concept of salmon gold came out. And the idea of salmon gold is to say, if you're going to mine in your mining activities, 
is it possible to do it in a way that when you um, leave the project, it's better than when you started? And really important is the quality of water because we wanted to make sure that, you know, the indigenous fish populations and the salmon runs, in fact, were the primary objective of this whole project was to make sure that they were able to survive in their natural habitat. The second piece on this is, is that it's a mining where historical mining occurred. In historical mines, what they did, you know, in the early 1900s through mid-1900s, they had these big dredges up in that area and they used mercury. And so they would go into the creek systems and they would dredge it all out and take the gold and then they would leave. But they, the mercury, a lot of that mercury leached into the system. When they left, they did not try to reclaim the, the creek beds. So what happened is the water would run through these tailings. And because they were using mercury, it's, it stands to reason that mercury levels are up. So what we did is we remined some of these old areas. We created a channel for the water to flow. And then we created ponds. And so that you could um, have a place where the fish can go without calm, like a lake type setting. The creek we created so that it would, you know, it had uh, natural ripples with rocks and trees and whatnot, so that it would create the oxygen required in the water system for the fish population. In fact, what started to happen is within 24 hours of us doing this project, we saw the, the grayling population come into the water. And we've also seen the um, migratory birds actually uh, nesting in these little ponds that were created. It's beautiful. So I think that way it worked really well. I think of it like this. Mining laws and policies require you to reclaim your project. They don't specify what levels. With what we're doing is we're calling it restoration, it, which goes beyond just simply reclaiming the piece of land. We're thinking of it in the context of the ecosystem and all the animals, the birds, the fish, the wildlife that actually utilize the area is restored in a way that it's, it's uh, natural to them. Right. And so by going above and beyond in that way, there are some interesting elements of your supply chain downstream, right? Uh, yeah, I heard you're partnered with Apple and Tiffany. Yeah, that's correct. You know, it's why I talked a little bit earlier about IRMA standards. A lot of the end users like Apple, Tiffany, you know, BMW, and I, and we know that the uh, investments financing world is also paying attention to this. So that what they're saying is they would like to be able to know that where the product is mined to where they take it into their system in California and Apple, for example, they want to be able to trace the gold from our project right to their, into their hands. And so they designed an app and uh, we were able to do that, track the gold to make sure that they can have absolute confidence it came from the project and went into their supply chain. And that initiative is supportive. So Apple and Tiffany both contributed funds and became partners of Resolve to in fact be able to do these pro this project in uh, the Klondike Goldfield. It just happens that it's my nephew that we partnered with and he owns a company called Yukon Heliski. Relationships, you know, it's about knowing each other, connecting the dots, bringing the, uh, the uh, not-for-profit in, bringing Apple and Tiffany and Apple came up to the project and they did a quite a large shoot on it and 
it became an important story in their, how they're looking at procurement for their uh, products to make sure that their metals and that are, are meeting the, those kind of standards now. It's, it was really important. When we started the project, we also reached out to Toronto Quichon. You see, and Toronto Quichon is the First Nation that's located in Dawson City. And we asked them for their consent to allow us to go and do this project with Yukon Heliski. We offered them to get involved in any way that they wanted to. They could um, work with us to help design the project. They could help to do the project. They could do whatever kind of a process they wanted. And so they, they said to us that they, they thought it was a good project. They suggested that we use um, indigenous kind of vegetation they they asked us if it would be possible to uh, bring plants that they use for medis for medicines like berries for gathering and whatnot. So what I wanted to do is also talk about Shona metals and and the project we did this year with respect to exploration. I take the view that if I'm going to go and do exploration, that I should talk to the First Nation whose lands I'm going to be on to seek their approval. So I did that. We did a prospecting project in northern BC this summer. So we went in, we formed the First Nation, and we said we'd like to go into your territory exploring, prospecting. We retained one of their members to uh, come out with us to see where we were prospecting. And then we committed to them if we were found on anything of interest we would come back and ask for their support before we would go ahead and stake. So we did find some interesting prospects this summer. And so now we're getting ready to stake. And so we went back and we asked their support to go ahead and stake claims this summer. We're now getting close to the point now where we're going to stake the claims. They have come back and given us their approval to go ahead and stake claims. And as we move through this, I want to set it up in a way that they will be able to participate so that they could learn from the project, bring their younger people involved in it. And I am make the commitment to them if this moves forward towards a mining project that will be developed, I want to make sure they have equity in it. Mm -hmm. So speaking of equity, um, obviously there's many ways that as an industry we can foster further Indigenous participation. Not on your own path, you have found this equity model to be particularly rewarding. Uh, I imagine there's also some challenges. Could you share a bit about that? Well, you know what? <clears throat> As a result of this project, I've uh, reached out to the University of British Columbia, and I'm asking them if they would work with us to find ways to increase Indigenous participation in uh, post-secondary institution to, to pursue things like geology and mining engineer and environmental engineers. And um, they've been very uh, interested in doing that. These discussions have just started. I've had one major discussion with them, uh, well, two major discussions, one with the uh, recently appointed Chancellor uh, Stephen Point, and then I met with some of the deans in the university so that we what, what I would like to do is make our project in Northern British Columbia part of that effort to increase First Nation participation on the, on the geology side of it, the exploration side of it, as it goes forward so that they are involved in every step of the way. 
you got to remember that they always have the, the option of saying that they uh, can no longer support the project because it's in too sensitive of an area. I recognize that, and I make the commitment to them that I would work with them if we came to that. So real challenges, I think if you stay respectful and they agree with you that you can explore in a certain area and then to support us in the staking of claims, I think we've gone, we've gone past some of the major mileposts, I guess, as to where it would, could create problems. I think so far uh, the First Nations have demonstrated a very uh, proactive willingness to work with us. Alan, I know you're really passionate about Aboriginal youth empowerment and, and leadership from some of our previous conversations. In the context of Indigenous participation in the mining industry, what future do you dream of for the next generation? Well, you see, the reason I wanted to work with UBC is because my colleagues and I, we looked at it, we say, what is happening in the sector today that needs to change? We need our youth to get geology degrees. We need them to sit on the board of directors for exploration companies, for mining companies. We need them to understand the industry from start to finish. You know, we should understand the micro and macroeconomics associated with mining. We should understand that the value of those, what is the true value of those minerals and metals that are in our territory? I think that we should become the leaders in um, strategic metals because we want to help solve some of the climate change problems. How do you do it? I think you, you, know, you know we recognize that strategic metals are the way of the future. I also think that we need to get involved in making sure that the minerals that are produced in our territories are smelted and refined using the best technology rather than sending it over to, to Asian countries where they use coal to, to do that process. And this is ways for us to try to do our piece on climate change. And I think we need to own the mines. And I think our communities have to benefit from it, not just the leadership, but our communities. So as an industry, it feels like there's still such a lack of awareness and ownership regarding the way our colonial history shaped and continues to shape the uneven power structures present in the way that we do business even today, especially when it comes to communities. What, from your perspective, is mining still getting wrong? And what advice would you give a non-Indigenous, well-intentioned mining executive about how to get it right? Well... First, I don't think it's just the mining companies. I think government has a big role in this. When I talk with mining companies, a lot of them would say that they, they're concerned about putting in pre-prior informed consent into their agreements. But to me, that's the ultimate requirement because it then clearly is built on trust and respect for each other. And then when you put the agreement together, we recognize that if you give consent, you can all take it away. And so if you're... Right, consent is not a static thing. Right. So what we said is, let's put the conditions in there as to what would constitute reasonable grounds for a First Nation to withdraw consent. So an example of it is, if you set out a payment schedule, 
let's say you're going to make a payment on January 1st of every year, and January 1st comes along and you don't make a payment, and you don't make a payment for a lengthy time, we said that's the kind of thing that would be grounds to withdraw consent because the benefit to the First Nation is the only one that's suffering in that kind of a scenario. The company, if they stay operating, have to pay their their vendors and whatnot, and they have to pay their management to keep it going. But the only ones that don't get paid would be the First Nation. So I think it's really important for, for, for industry to accept the notion that pre-prime form consent is required because it is the absolute best certainty they can get. I think that why I was saying to you earlier, it's not just industry, but government also has to recognize that if you're going to give lands and resources to a particular group or corporate entity, it should require the pre-prime form consent of the affected First Nation. And I think some of the corporations are getting it. And I think we're starting to see First Nations show up on boards of directors now. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. Or we see maybe less implementation of these ideas is really at the expiration stage. You know, the junior companies, they're still in mode of not accepting the idea of free prior informed consent. They take great pains to say that if you tell people where you're going to explore, then you're inviting competition to come in ahead of you or, or to compete with you. And I just don't uh, buy that anymore. And I, I think the juniors are going to have to come around to the idea that, hey, we're not bad people. We could be very helpful for your project if it's supported. If you don't have our support, you should understand that you run a risk that your project doesn't get supported at all. So it sounds like that's actually a really big opportunity. And I actually wanted to ask you specifically, what are some of our greatest opportunities uh, for change as an industry so we can more effectively reduce our social risk, claims, negative impacts, and genuinely support economic self-sufficiency, reconciliation, ecological stewardship? Those are some of the ideas I was trying to talk about in bits and pieces throughout this. But one is we need industry to understand that we are a government, that we have the ability to say yes or no as to how our lands and resources get utilized, that we have got authority built into our self-governing inherent right, and uh, that we do have the ability to uphold projects if they impact on our values and that are non-negotiable. You know, I, I take the view of non-negotiable things like if you're going to damage a whole ecosystem, I can't support it. If you're going to potentially impact our salmon population, I'm going to be very vigilant on how you're going to make sure that doesn't happen. I think that there's many opportunities working with First Nations people. I'm personally seeing and being and being having conversations where the investment community wants to see social, responsible, environmentally sustainable kind of projects. And so they want to invest in those types of projects. We're seeing the end users like Apple, Tiffany, BMW, Accelerate Metal, and organizations like this say, we want to buy responsibly mined product. As we look at what are being called strategic metals, most of them are geared towards battery technology. 
So you got big companies like Tesla that wants to buy that kind of material, and they're reaching out now to indigenous companies to say, we'd like to work with you guys because we want to make sure that your community benefits, you know, we share your values about making sure the environment is intact, that carbon values are, the carbon sequestration could be reduced by using battery type technology. So you start to see all of these things come together with progressive kind of companies. Absolutely. And we're starting to see it even in the U.S. now with the election of Biden. We know the Biden administration is gearing up to incentivize new technology in relation to energy, solar, wind, battery technology. We know that to do all of that requires more and more of these strategic metals. We know that the bulk of them comes from Asian countries, China being one of the biggest suppliers. And that creates the potential for countries to start to uh, use those strategic metals in a political way to achieve the, again, their end goal, their result. And so I think that we should all recognize that you know, nationalism is not totally bad. You know, they may need to be talking about a North American strategy to try to keep some of those strategic metals here so that it's, um, I would say, a more secure access to strategic metals is critically important. A more secure and a more responsible access, I presume. Yes. I, you know, I, everything I do now is more geared towards things like making sure IRMA-type standards apply. If we're not going to use IRMA as, as the standard, they, then we need them to be close to that. And, we're, and I'll give you an example of this, a couple of them. One is that big projects need social license. And to get social license from the First Nation communities means that we need to implement free prior informed consent. The second thing is when you take a mining project and you start it off, you see, I always say this, you know, if you're having a hard time starting up a mine, then you're probably operating by the, with, very, with no margin for error. And that in itself should raise red flags. So I take the view that early in the mind life, they have to put up non-refundable, hard financial assurance to ensure that restoration work can be done. And I take the view that when those mining companies do that, if they sell the project to a junior or smaller company, they should not be able to take that money back out. If they want to recover that money, they have to do it from those they're selling it to. I think these are the kind of things that create support for a project. We all learned that when Mount Polly happened, our communities were the last ones to be brought into the discussion to try to find reasonable solutions. Our community was not resourced for it until we forced to create enough of a situation that governments had with us sat with our indigenous people and worked out an understanding with them. The company, they took it to court. They wound up with a settlement of, I think, around $80 million. They spent, the last I heard, was less than $50 million on reclamation with respect to that disaster. And so if you're an outsider looking in, it looks like they made money because it happened. Wow. Those are the optics that are bad for for the project, for the mining company, for the industry. And, you know, that's 
the kind of stuff that creates lack of public confidence. So what do you expect the biggest challenges are going to be in advancing Indigenous participation in mining? I think some of the biggest challenges is to build our capacity in our own communities. By this, I mean, I've talked earlier about getting more of our young people to get into post-secondary institutions where they can get those skill sets necessary for exploring, finding, developing minds and equity. You know, the second challenge is for our governments. See, so our governments need to build capacity. So when you talk about shared decision-making, shared management, we have people on the ground that have those skill sets. So in this regard, I'm involved with some of our other Indigenous leaders, and we're looking at Guardian as a key piece of the puzzle. So we need a Guardian network. We need Why we need the network is so that we can get some training that all of our people would get that's required for resource development. So training around management of wildlife, assessing wildlife impact from projects, assessing the potential fish impact from projects. What are the social, cultural type impacts that could arise from mining projects? So we need to understand all of those different types of impacts. And our community needs to build capacity. On the other side, we need government to enter into agreements with us to bring us in, not bring us in, but to recognize our title and rights in a way that we share those decisions, share those management, and we share the benefit and revenues that flow from projects. And to do that, we need to engage and we need to be consistent with the UN Declaration. If we are true to that, then I think our project would not only see First Nation support or public support, but industry support. And industry are the ones that are looking for public confidence. They're looking for certainty so that they can attract investment dollars. And they want certainty to be able to build their project, to be able to sell their product on the market in a way that the end buyers are going to actually use it. I think when you look at all of those pieces, we need to be better about connecting them together. We need to be better about building that confidence and certainty for all those that we are speaking on behalf of. And I think all of that just says that we'll be a better place for it. So, Alan, what does the term indigenizing mining mean to you? Is it integrating environmental or cultural values into project design? Is it contributions to community development, local employment, local procurement, uh, impact benefit agreements, equity stakes, something else, all of the above? Well, I think it takes in all of the above, but it starts with this. It starts with recognition of our title. It starts with recognition that we have inherent right to self-government. And then from that, all the stuff you talk about falls into the to that larger idea of indigenizing mining. I notice that indigenous people throughout the world are asking these same things of the companies and their governments they deal with. So when you take a guy like President Morales of Bolivia, what he did is be an indigenous person himself. He brought the indigenous people very much into the whole 
discussion of resource development. And he took his company, his country, forward and their GDP rates ratio grew because of it. Mining played a big part of that. All of the indigenous communities in British Columbia are not going to be out there in the mining world because they're not impacted that's directly by mining. So some of our First Nations living that situated in the city of Vancouver or situated in the city of Victoria, the kind of mining activity that impacts them are like gravel quarries. And so there's a different type of mining altogether. We have some First Nations that do not have what would be called high potential development in their territories. They're just not located in the right place. But there are several that are. I give you an example of Toltan. We have a company called uh, Seabridge. They're, the last time I looked at their reserves, they were over 10 billion in copper, 10 billion pounds of copper, around 300 million ounces of silver, 45, 50 million ounces of gold. And you start to look at the scale of that project. It's a, it's a monster mine. It's situated in a way that on one side of it, you have the uh, Eunuch River, which is a salmon spawning population in the river. The other side of the project is the Bell Irving system, river system, which is salmon spawning area that flows into the Nass River system. So you say this potential, this project has potential to impact two salmon river spawning systems. Is it okay for this mine to, pro to go forward at the scale that, that their environmental certificate suggests they, they want to? As an Indigenous person, I say, I'm uncomfortable with it. We don't talk about the cumulative impact. So in this particular area, you have Seabridge, you have Bruce Jack Mine that's operating today. You have, uh, there's another one in there, I'm not sure of the name of it. And then you have, within 50 miles of it, you have Glore Creek, which is one of the largest copper deposits in the world. Within 50 miles of Glore is another one called Copper Fox or Shaft Creek, and they're on the Iskut River system. You have two smaller mines, Johnny and Snip. And then Redcrest, which is an operating mine, is that uh, Clapan system, which flows into Iskut, which flows into the Stikine. So you see, we don't talk about those cumulative impacts enough. I don't want to say none of them should go ahead. I don't want to say that any one of them should be stopped or proceed. But I think that our leadership needs to look at that cumulative impact. And what is the cumulative impact on the wildlife, on an ecosystem, on our wild Pacific salmon runs? How does our nation benefit if they support those types of projects? Those are real complicated issues and really requires a deep understanding of them projects. And does the benefit outweigh the risk? really important questions that need to be answered. As, as you look at globalization, you look at the carbon, the uh, impact to climate change, you know, we need to be more and more vigilant about what I'm going to term, which has been termed by other people as food security. You know, our food security is uh, really important. My people, the Tultan people were we are Dena people, you see, and Chiona 
in our language, it means wolf. See, I'm Jonah, I'm wolf from the wolf clan. We need to understand that if you put big projects in our territory, what happens is there's impact socially, there's impacts culturally, there's politically, economically, and that we have to understand those impacts. And what are the impacts to the wildlife? You see, because our people are still, we still harvest our food on the land, like our moose populations and our caribou, our sheep. And we still eat the salmon that come up the river. That's our food security. The less we can become dependent on the South for things like vegetables, fruits, berries and stuff, the less we become dependent on them, the more control and authority we will have over our food source. Those are going to be really critically important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the future of the mining industry, what are you most afraid of and what are you most excited about? I'm not afraid of it, but I want to see more controls. Like uh, I would like our people to have more authority. And with that become, comes responsibility. You know, if we're going to have authority, we have responsibility to make sure if we agree to a project that we understand the impacts of it. I think that also gives me excitement because it means that we have to evolve as a government, that we have to evolve as decision makers, that we have to encourage our entrepreneurs to get involved in business. I do not want our government to become the only business in town. I don't want them to compete with us. I think they have to get more mature and understanding that that they should not compete with their uh, membership or their citizens. You know, there's a reason why government, public governments don't get into competition with entrepreneurs, except in certain situations. They clearly put their hands into the mix for the development of energy and the distribution of energy. But I think that our indigenous communities are starting to see more and more our uh, nation setting up corporations that take away opportunity from individuals that want to pursue business opportunities. And I don't think that's right. So I think there's some growing pains on our part. I look inward more than I do look outward. If we're strong as a government, if we're strong as ensuring that our citizens have every opportunity to pursue education and higher learning, every opportunity to pursue business, recognizing that our government needs to build capacity to make shared decisions, to share management, and to share the benefit and revenues from our lands and resources. If they get good at that, they don't need to compete with the entrepreneurs. And so it's all about building capacity. That's great. There's a, there's a question that I ask everyone on the show. You know, the name of the show is Prospecting Purpose. What does purpose mean to you, Alan, in the context of the future of the mining industry? What is our role in tackling humanity's grand challenges and crafting a more sustainable and socially just future? Well, you know, it sounds corny, but it's called respons being responsible. I explain it this way. We mine the raw materials here in British Columbia. We ship them to Vancouver or to Prince Rupert or Stewart, and we sail them across the ocean in a raw form. We send the coal across the ocean to Asia, China, 
and we get them to smelt it and refine it. And then we buy it back here at a premium. And now we're getting ready to uh, develop the gas field. We're going to ship that by over to Prince Rupert. We're going to turn it into natural, liquid natural gas. And we're going to ship it across to Asia for them to use. We have not been very good at leading the technology of smelting and refining. We've not been very good at doing that in our own lands and communities. And then we're looking at mega projects like how do you electrify the uh, public highways with charging stations. We're talking about building light rapid transit in downtown Vancouver and then connecting the corridor down the West Coast. And we're going to buy all this product from overseas if we don't do it here. So I think our government should look at how do you incentivize value added? How do you incentivize clean technology? What COVID-19 showed us is that you can measure the carbon impacts of our of mankind. You know, you always get into this question, is modern man impacting the carbon in such a way that it's created climate change? Well, what COVID showed us, if you shut the smelting down in China, you can actually see China's land. It showed us that if you shut down man's, the industry in, in Italy, that the water cleaned itself back up in canals of Venice. It showed it. And the dolphins came back. Yeah. <laughs> you see, it, it's, it's amazing what nature will do if you give it half a chance. You know, let's take that serious. Let's pursue clean technology. Let's do it at home. We don't have to ship it over and ship it back. Let's try to do it here. So I'm optimistic about it. We just need the action to occur at the uh, government levels. It takes people like yourself to um, have the vision and the initiative to in be interested enough to invite people like me into a conversation that potentially changes this whole mining sector approach to doing business. I commend you on that. And I say thank you for reaching out to me and invite me to participate. Madhu, as we say. Thank you. I appreciate that so much, Alan. I'm so thankful for your time today. Um, and thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts, your opinions, your experiences. And if you change even one person's opinion of mining or teach even one person in the audience something they didn't know before, then I think our time today was worth it. Thanks so much for that. And I wish you guys all the best in the, the uh, you know, in your efforts on all of these uh, productions you're going to do. Well, that's all for today's episode. If you're looking to connect with Alan or learn more about his work, you can reach him at tionametals.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This episode is powered by Simpact, an ESG think tank and sustainability advisory firm on a mission to shape a more sustainable, socially just, and brighter future for all. Visit us at sympact.ca to learn more. What's your purpose?